Seat at the Nebraska Table is a program of the Nebraska Civic Engagement Table. As a nonpartisan nonprofit, we do not endorse political parties or candidates, but do take positions on issues. We provide Nebraskans with the information they need to make informed decisions and stay engaged in their communities. To learn more, visit our website at nebraskatable.org. This is Seat at the Nebraska Table. I'm Karina Hernandez. Welcome to this episode of Seat at the Nebraska Table. Today we're celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with my colleague, Bill Yang. Bill, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Bill is the Grassroots Advocacy Coordinator and Whites Fellow at the Nebraska Civic Engagement Table. He is a graduate of Carleton College with degrees in biology and history. He has experience working on local and congressional campaigns, as well as with advocacy organizations during his time in Minnesota. So AAPI Heritage Month, um, that includes anyone of Asian, Asian American, or Pacific Islander ancestry. The term is used to describe a diverse and fast-growing population of 23 million Americans that includes roughly 50 ethnic groups with roots in more than 40 countries. AAPI Month originated with Congress in 1978 as a week-long celebration in May. Then in 1990, Congress passed a law that expanded the observance of this week into a month-long event. And in 1992, Congress passed a law that designated the whole month of May as AAPI Heritage Month. So how are you celebrating AAPI Heritage Month? So in the past, when I was in college, I used to, uh, we used to organize all sorts of uh, events and um, both around sharing Asian foods and uh, stuff with the dining halls. And uh, we used to share social media posts about uh, important Asian uh, figures and that sort of carried on back at Carleton. Um, and it's, uh, you know, honestly, it's been a little, uh, a, a little lax here for me this, this past year, but I recently attended the, uh, Asian Community and Cultural Center's 30th anniversary, anniversary, and, um, that was a really, really fun event. Um, it was super cool to see just the sheer diversity of Asian populations here in Nebraska, um, a state that, um, I think it's fair to say we don't always think of as being the most diverse place, but it really tr- truly surprised me, and it was really, really cool. That's super, super cool. Um, well, I was trying to think of some ideas. Since I'm not part of the community, I was trying to think of some ideas of like how I can celebrate it as well. And the big one for me is I love learning, so I was like, I'm going to learn slash educate myself on some of the history. So I was wondering on why it falls in May – and I found out that it's because of some historical milestones, um, including the 1843 arrival of the first Japanese immigrants. So I thought that was super cool, as well as the Chinese laborers' um, contributions to building the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, which was finished in May of 1869. Apparently, um, it was built by around 20,000 Chinese immigrants. So that's huge um i take the train all the time so super cool yeah absolutely i mean the um you know san francisco is one of the uh only cities uh in america that 
in Chinese we don't have a phonetic tra- translation for. Um, in Chinese, it's called the Old Gold Mountain, Jiujinshan. Um, and you know, I think the fact that it has its own Chinese name speaks to the importance of those first immigrants. Um, they really, really built San Francisco with both uh, investing in its businesses, uh, helping to uh, sustain the city community that grew up around the gold rush, and then of course building the transcontinental railroad, which uh, you know basically expanded the United States' ability to actually uh, govern and colonize the West Coast. So basically, any, anything you see in California today, that was a huge contribution. Wow, that's super incredible. Um, and I definitely didn't know that. So into my continued, um, you know, learning. And, you know, some other ways that you can learn other than just reading about it, um, you know, you can... Uh, explore some of the AAPI history by, you know, watching a movie or a documentary, um, as well as by exploring some of the Asian and Pacific art and food. Food for me is like a huge way of celebration. Um, Another way that you can celebrate is by volunteering your time or donating money to a local organization There are many local organizations in Nebraska that support and uplift the AAPI community. Um, So I wanted to name a few uh, that you can check out and volunteer your time or donate your money to. The first is the Asian Community and Cultural Center. We'll be talking about them a lot. Um, And Legal Aid of Nebraska, Nebraska Chinese Association, Refugee Empowerment Center, and the Filipino American Organization of the Metropolitan. A metropolitan Omaha. Another way that you can celebrate this month is by supporting local businesses. So, you know, that goes anywhere from a business to a restaurant owned by Asian American and Pacific Islander people. So, Bill, what is your favorite local business to support? Well, um, like you said, food is a huge part um, of our culture and, uh, and so I got to go with two restaurants I really like here in Lincoln. Uh, Mr. Hui's in, um, here in Lincoln, they got two locations. Both are just as good. I order takeout from all the time. Um, and then Rangdong uh, Malaysian Restaurant on O and 27th here in Lincoln is uh, some of the best like Malaysian food I've had in the United States. And um, it's actually... It's actually really incredible. So definitely check those two places out. They're both um, family-owned restaurants, so that's really exciting. Okay, and what is a dish that um, I should be getting when I go? Um, definitely at the uh, Malaysian restaurant, I'd really suggest the uh, mi goreng. Um, I, I get extra noodles and fish tofu. And just splendid. But honestly, anything's good at both places. Um at Mr. Hui's, the roast duck, if you're willing to mm. shout a little bit of money. Oh, my God. It's <laughs> it's actually quite incredible. <laughs> I love that. Um, one of the places that I like to support locally in Omaha is Three Happiness Express. They're also family-owned. They're a Chinese restaurant um, on Leavenworth Street. And, um, yeah, they're proud winners of the Best of Omaha and Reader's Choice. And I love it because it's really close to my house. And uh, the portions are great. The food is great. It just makes me really happy and definitely one that I love to support. Uh, Shout out to my friend, Claudia, who took me there for the first time. Thank you. So, Bill, 
Mm-hmm. So back to you. I know you have about a month left as part of the Tables Whites Fellow. Can you tell us a little bit about what you worked on? What was it like being a fellow? Yeah, so the Whites Fellowship is a exclusive fellowship for graduates of Carleton College. We're placed with uh, anywhere between six to eight nonprofits here in Nebraska, um, including uh, Nebraska Appleseed, The Table, uh, the Women's Fund of Omaha, uh, Film Streams, um, and various other arts and cultural organizations. Um, so here at the table this year, you know, we've done a lot of cool things. I'm the first fellow that the table has ever had, so that yeah. was very exciting. Um, and it felt very good to do a lot of the trailblazing work. Um, we put together, um, you know, a lot of resources around legislative work, uh, the legislative process. Mm-hmm. Um, for our members and we took a lot of meetings with them to see exactly sort of what they needed out of uh like policy support and Mm -hmm. what's getting in the way of them expanding their uh work on the hill basically um yeah and that's super exciting and then we've also um been uh running our organizer and lobbying school and so i was uh, very fortunate to be part of both of those things uh, putting together resources and teaching uh, classes and stuff. So, yeah, I I think one of my favorite things that you well, first of all, we loved having you be part of our team. That Thank was you. it was super fun. I think one of my favorite things that you worked on uh, that you shared was I think you wrote how a bill comes or like what was it? How a bill becomes law. I think, yeah, or something like that. So, written by Bill, you know. So that was fun. Um, One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is obviously you've been doing this work for a while and um, what I wanted to talk to you about today was what barriers are Asian communities facing when it comes to civic engagement from what you've learned? Yeah, so I'll speak a little bit about um, both uh, the um, what the research and what you know policy says and my personal experience. So one of the big ones is um, language and and the thing that we have to remember is that uh, even though we you know call this AAPI Asian American Pacific Islanders Month within that contains a massive um, a massive and diverse uh, group of people Um, and we first of all don't share the same language and this becomes a little tricky when you know, you have places in the United States right now that are passing restrictions on who can interpret for um, for people at the polling stations. Um, so I'll just give you one example here. Um, back in Georgia, um, they have very strict restrictions on uh, who can interpret uh, foreign language. They have to be a registered voter in Georgia <clears throat> or a close family member. And so we've seen circumstances where uh, Korean-speaking American citizens don't have the ability to exercise their right to vote because they mm. don't have access to interpretation. And um, frequently, because of the diverse language requirements and barriers, states don't put a lot of emphasis on making sure that uh, Asian communities are adequately serviced. Um, and that diversity also highlights one of the other problems, which is uh, how Asian communities have frequently been sort of ignored and put on the undercurrent for uh, uh, 
when it comes to actual political representation and targeting. And so one of the things we see is that <clears throat> Asian American households uh, consistently are underreached by candidates running for office. And this isn't new. This is something that's always been the case. So in the past election, for instance, in 2020, 33% of Asian Americans reported being contacted by a campaign, whereas 45% of white Americans did. Mm -hmm. And when, when you break down the aggregate data uh, for groups like Chinese people, Vietnamese people, that number falls below 30%. Mm -hmm. And so when candidates don't engage with us, we don't seem to want to engage with them. And why would I? When I don't know, when I don't have the opportunity to learn about who's running, what they stand for. Mm -hmm. And then the final thing is, um, many times, uh, in my experience, um, Asian communities, we are deeply and intensely political. You know, every... <laughs> Every uncle and aunt that I've ever met have always had a political opinion about something. Mm -hmm. Whether or not I agree with them all the time, <laughs> I certainly acknowledge that they have their own opinion. Right. Um, but oftentimes you don't come from uh, countries or backgrounds that uh, have always had voting as a part of the uh, civic engagement tool. Mm -hmm. um, many countries in Southeast Asia still are dictatorships or autocracies one way or another and and, and so when we have uh, immigrants coming to the United States they bring that experience with them mm -hmm. they they bring that idea of very limited civic engagement with them and what the problem there is is that they don't see how voting matters they don't see how voting for candidates that uh, support policies and beliefs that benefit their communities, they don't really understand how that's uh, impactful. And it's not so much that they simply don't understand. It's because they've never had a chance to. Mm -hmm. They've never been exposed to this as a form of civic engagement. And so even though they're deeply political, um, all these barriers sort of come together and uh, basically under um, undersell the amount of civic engagement that Asian communities do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is a super important aspect um, of, you know, engaging with this community. Um, language, I think, is huge. Um, especially, you know, when we're thinking about exercising our right to vote, we need to be able to read it, um, you know, and... Um, and also in terms of like, you know, informing ourselves, if we don't know even the resources of where to find candidate information, um, I think, or if we're not contacted, I think it can be hard to engage. So I think you make some really good points there. Yeah. And on the, I'll just expand a little bit more on the language part too. Um, you know, today I got a letter from the IRS mm -hmm. um, and they have a sheet that off that details what language services they offer. And mm -hmm. they offered uh, Chinese, Vietnamese, Arabic, uh, Hindi, Tagalog. And, uh, and and my thinking was, if the IRS can offer it, mm -hmm. why can't right. the Secretary of State, why can't we do that for voting? Um, where that is, of course, a fundamental right that every American has. Mm-hmm we're not allowing them to exercise that right if we're restricting their language. Right. And 
we're looking at a community that uh, somewhere that ranges between uh, 20 to 40 some percent of um, Asian Americans, depending on your th- specific ethnicity, don't speak English as a primary language. Right. And if you've ever had to fill out forms in a foreign language, it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, for instance, um, those things get in the way of extremely overly stringent voter registration laws. Um, and again, going back to Georgia, not to beat up on the mm-hmm. peach state, but they rejected thousands of ballots back in 2016 because the names had slight mm-hmm. uh, alterations. And uh, this is a very common thing. And, you know, as someone who has both an English name and a Chinese name, where my Chinese name is my legal name, um, you know, that's something that I constantly have to be aware of because uh, sometimes you fill out a form here or there and slowly you notice your English name that's not your legal name creeping into documents. And when you don't speak English yourself, those things become very, very hard to watch, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so accounting for some of those uh, slight mistakes meant that you rejected thousands of ballots back in 2016 in a state where that margin easily could have swung several elections. Right. Exactly. I I think, um, you know, an important thing to know is that, you know, we need to pay attention what's, to what's going on in other states um, and also informing people to what's happening here in Nebraska. In Nebraska, you can bring, you know, a friend or a family member, if you have one, to assist you. So remember that. Um, share that information with your communities as well. Um as a listener, I guess I'm not telling you well because I feel like you know, you know what's going on. But yeah, just make sure that people are informed that they can um, bring assistance um, to that. And talking about you being super engaged, Bell, I feel like I I wanted you to. I feel like you have a really unique story as well. So I wanted you to tell me a little bit about you know how do you engage with your community? We've heard a little bit about um, how you do that already, but if you wanted to share more. Yeah, so um, I guess the background here, of course, is that I'm not an American citizen. Um, right. I grew up in, uh, I split time between China and Canada, and um, I went to school uh, primarily in China. I went to international schools from some time and local schools for some time, and I didn't immigrate to the United States until I was in college. Mm-hmm. And that was something, um, you know, that cultural shock that I had talked about earlier, certainly I felt the same way. You know, I didn't come into the, the U.S. really thinking about politics at all because I didn't really have the opportunity to do so back when I grew up in China. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of things really changed um, my path with civic engagement. First was uh, local volunteering. So I began volunteering with a local clinic where Carleton College is. Um, they serve underinsured and uh, primarily uh, non-English native language populations. Mm-hmm. Um, in Northfield, Minnesota, that looks uh, primarily like uh, immigrants of Latino descent or Somali mm-hmm. uh, descent. And so that was a really important way for me to engage with my community. And um, that expanded later on to volunteering with um, other advocacy groups, Mm -hmm. um, helping them put together strategies and uh, panels and policy discussions and 
I worked on a few campaigns. And I think the key takeaway here is that there's a lot of ways to engage with your community that looks a lot more, that's a lot more beyond just voting at the ballot or, uh, you know, working on a campaign. It's engaging with your local community's organizations, with mm-hmm. their uh, anywhere from like their food banks to uh, policy advocacy groups to e- even um, like animal shelters. Th- these all are part of civic engagement, and you are all doing things here that matter to public life, that mm-hmm. matter to public policy, and that one way or another, directly or indirectly, affects your life. Right. And like you're serving your com- community, you're connecting with your community. And that's a huge part of that civic engagement piece. Um, right. So as we were talking, you know, like you are limited in what you can do as a person who's not a citizen, a.k.a. the biggest one is voting. So I'm sure you still vote. So can you <laughs> tell me a little bit about what it's like to vote in the Canadian elections? Yeah. <clears throat> um. So. I, I do vote in the Canadian elections. I've uh, voted in their past two federal elections. Um, so in Canada, uh, we vote for a our local representative, essentially. Uh, uh, we call it a MP or a member of parliament. Um, and then whoever wins, whoever's party has the most uh, members of parliament, at the end of the day, their party leader becomes the prime minister. Uh, voting Canada is um, very, um, it's very easy uh, to get registered. So as an international student living outside of Canada, uh, I report to them my last Canadian permanent address, and then I provide them with either a like passport, birth certificate, driver's license. I gave them a passport, but I had the option to choose uh, two IDs um, that ranges somewhere between band membership cards to uh, indigenous uh, ind- indigenous ID to blood donor to hospital cards, mm. labels on a prescription container, credit card statements, debit cards, uh, employee cards, and letters from uh, public guardians, uh, senior residences, soup kitchens. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very, very diverse set of documents, which is focused on lowering the barrier for mm-hmm. people to vote. And Canada is even more of an immigrant um, community than mm-hmm. the United States. Uh, most Canadians, um, you know, obviously <laughs> we're, we're all immigrants to a degree or not another, mm-hmm. but Canada has one of the high, world's highest uh, uh, populations of second generation, third generation, so more recent immigrants. Mm-hmm. And it's vitally important that uh, for, to Canadians that, uh, those voices get heard mm-hmm. and the only way to make sure that happens is making sure everyone gets registered to vote mm-hmm. right right I I did want to highlight I know that um, previously you had shared with me a little bit about candidates and um, their names do you want to share a little bit about that uh what do you mean like that they have they also have Chinese names? Yes. Oh yeah. So uh oftentimes for especially candidates in populations uh that have high levels of um Asian Americans, for instance, in places like Vancouver where I grew up, 
uh, candidates, even if they're um, white Canadians, often will also adopt a Chinese name mm-hmm. um, to better connect with uh, the communities that they represent. And I think that's a really cool thing. Um, you know, they often come, the, the communities that they come from, that these members of parliament come from, look like Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. And it's important, you know, and, and it's a really, really... Uh, comforting thing to see that these candidates are making a direct effort to make themselves as accessible to their own communities as possible mm-hmm. and that makes that gives me a lot of hope and trust that these people really do want to represent their communities the best exactly yeah I know you had shared that with me before and I was like we have to say that because that's such an interesting I think piece to um, candidates that I haven't seen locally. Um, and on more ways to engage, uh, you know, when you're not a citizen or want to engage beyond the ballot, um, I took some from a checklist that I found called Dem- Democracy76 um, by brookings.edu. And some of the things that you can do are volunteer to register voters or volunteer at a polling place like we were talking about. Offer to drive people to the polls. Um, Communicate with your elected officials to share your views on issues that you care about, you know, through letters, phone calls, or visiting um, are some ways to contact them. Attending a city council meeting or a community town hall, um, or volunteering with a nonprofit or a museum or library, food bank, um, community garden. There's a lot of different ways. Um, We wanted to highlight one of our members, the Asian Community and Cultural Center. I know we talked about them a little bit, Mm. but I want to share more about them. So, yeah, they recently celebrated uh, their 30th anniversary. um, And in honor of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month and those 30 years of serving the Lincoln community, uh, they brought community members together for an incredible day of food, performances, and a variety of cultural displays from around the world that Bill went to. Um, and they support and empower all refugees and immigrants through programs and services, as well as by advancing and sharing um, Asian culture and other cultural heritage with the community at large. Uh, They work tirelessly toward their vision of ensuring that immigrants have access to the resources and support they need to lead better lives. Um, And they do that by um, providing a variety of programs and services, such as women, seniors, and youth groups, um, translation and interpretation services, English classes, citizenship classes, mental health support, health literacy support, cultural education, and family resource programs. Um, They're able to do this through their amazing uh, dedication of their staff members that speak and serve clients um, from the Vietnamese, Chinese, Sudanese, Afghan, Karen, Middle Eastern, Kurdish, and Ukrainian uh, communities. So make sure to mark your calendar for their upcoming cultural events, including Cam Culture Youth Camp and Harvest Moon Festival this summer. Curry Clash in the fall and Lunar New Year early next year. And connect with the Asian Community and Cultural Center on Facebook, Instagram, and learn more about uh, about them on their website at LincolnAsianCenter.org. That's all for us today. It seems kind of short. We'll have to have you back maybe, Bill. Uh, so let us know how you're celebrating AAPI Heritage Month with a hashtag, Seat at the Nebraska Table. Thank you so much for joining us, Bill. 
Thank you so much. And for taking a seat at the Nebraska table, I'm Karina Hernandez. We'll see you next time. <laughs>